0: Our scripture this morning is Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. Romans 16, 1 through 16. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Synchria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and I myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for me, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches and the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinonatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well-known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachis. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet thee, those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Isincritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you." That is the Word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have the Word of God in front of us today and that there is opportunity that we have to know you, to come into fellowship with you around your word and we pray that today this text would be meaningful in the way that you have intended it for it to be and so we pray now that you'd come Holy Spirit be our teacher help us to learn what it is that this text means and why it has been given to us we pray this in Jesus name amen I want to greet those of you here at North Indy and also to our brothers and sisters and fishers and to people around the world streaming today who are not with us. We're grateful that you're all with us today. We're in Romans 16, one to 16, and um, at least here at North Indy, Al did a great job reading that text. He, he worked really hard to get that right, so thank you, Al, so much. So there there are some passages in the Bible that you might consider speed reading, or doing a flyover, if you're reading through the Bible or doing a particular Bible study. There are certain passages of Scripture that you may read them, or you may hear them, and wonder, why is this important? Or you may have been listening as the Scripture was read and think, what in the world is Mark going to do with this? I thought that this week. Or there may be deeper questions, questions like this. So Romans 8, that's inspired, but is Romans 16 inspired? I mean, Romans 8 has great propositional truth in it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but a list of 26 names? How's that helpful? I'm choosing today to spend an entire Sunday on this text for a number of reasons. Here's the first one. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this: all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, complete and equipped for every good work. So hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, you come to the text with a bias. And that is, somehow, some way, this passage is for my good and for my help. So since Romans 16 is scripture, it has been given to us for a reason, and our task is to figure out why. Why is this in the Bible? Secondly, I wanna help you see that there are passages in the Bible that require you to read them over and over and over. And as you read them over and over, things begin to emerge that you wouldn't have seen in the first reading or the second reading or the third reading or even the fourth. And so that as you think about what you're going to read next year and what your Bible reading plan might be, I wanna encourage you that as you see particular texts, don't just take a first reading, but maybe dig a little deeper and deeper and deeper. Or maybe you're a new follower of Jesus trying to figure out how to make the Bible come alive. One of the ways you make it come alive is by reading a text over and over and over. And it's amazing what begins to emerge. Third, Romans 16 is surprisingly more helpful than what you might realize. There is more here than just a list of names. Within these 16 verses is a beautiful tapestry of theology, of love, of commendation, and mission, and here's the key, and they're all set in the framework of relationships. This text essentially is about relationships. It's about the people who are around the table, the people that Paul is interacting with, with whom he's doing life. And finally, One of the focal points for our church in 2016, one of the things that our elders and our pastors are going to be working on, one of the things you're going to be hearing a lot about in the next year is this word relationships. And I want to help you see today how vitally important these relationships are to the body of Christ and to your walk with Christ so that you would constantly be thinking about both the people around you and the people who you are connecting to by virtue of what it means to be the church. So my prayer for this text in your life and mine is this, that we'll leave today more in love with the Bible, more enamored with the church, more committed to building gospel-centered, mission-oriented, and people impacting relationships. What, What I want you to see today is how the gospel is lived out in the context of relationships. That's why I think Romans 16 is given to us. So first, The importance of relationships. I wanna start at a very high level as we make our way into this text. The, The book of Romans is filled with wonderful propositional truth statements all throughout the book. It's why we love the book of Romans. Romans 8, 1 would be a great example. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a propositional statement, and the book of Romans is pregnant with those kind of statements, and we love them because of their depth, because of their meaning, and also because of their application. But propositional statements also move into relational application, which is why Paul not only says there's no condemnation, he then says that we're to use our bodies as living sacrifices in Romans chapter 12, and why in Romans 14 and 15 he says that we're to welcome one another despite our differences. So there's a connection between propositional truth and where we actually live. Or to put it this way, there is a direct connection between theology and relationship. What you believe about grace, God, sin, forgiveness, and the cross have a very important effect on the relationships around you. In other words, if you believe the gospel, it should show up if you're married in your marriage. If you believe the gospel, it should show up in your interactions with your children. If you're a single adult, it should show up in how you interact with your friends. The gospel should show up in how you interact with people in your neighborhood and at work. The gospel was meant to be involved in our relationships. In fact, if there is a disconnect between your theology and your sociology, there's a huge problem. The gospel was meant to invade social structures. Your view of God will surface, and it will surface very evidently in relationships. For instance, you are not going to know that you are proud without the context of the expression of your pride in relationships. You may be proud individually but you will see it in a new light in light of people around you as well you can't express humility all by yourself god has placed people in your life for you to express and to live out humility in fact there are some people that god keeps placing in your life because he wants you to become humble in fact one of the keys is to see those people through that lens God has placed yet another person in my life because he wants me to be humbled. God, thank you for this person who is so irritating, and yet you have used them to make me humble. Some of you hung out with those people yesterday, and you were glad to get home, and yet God's going to keep sending them your way. When you first read verses 1 to 16, what stands out? What stands out are the names I mean, many of those names, you can't even imagine how you'd pronounce. Al helped you to see it here at North Indy. There are challenging, it's a challenging list of names. 26 people are mentioned. What Paul does here is he highlights the, the personal nature of his ministry. He's writing this letter not just to communicate truth, but he's writing it to people whose names he knows. So even though he's never visited Rome, there are specific people that he has in mind as he writes this book. He's not merely writing a theological treatise on justification or righteousness or God's sovereign purposes. There are real people whom he knows, real people who he loves, that are going to receive this letter, and I'm sure that those people shaped how he wrote this wonderful book. Mark it down somewhere in your mind. The best theologians, the best pastors, the best teachers, the best small group leaders, the best disciplers are those who connect their content to real people. They write, they study, they think, and they apply the word not just to a nameless sea of people, but they apply it to very specific people whose lives they know. So therefore, gospel ministry is not only about content, it's also about context. Meaning, we always have to be asking two questions. Number one, what needs to be said? And number two, to whom am I speaking? That relates if you're a parent, Applying the word to different children. What needs to be said, and to whom am I speaking? It relates to your small group. How to apply the content to various people. It relates if you're a counselor, how to apply the word in different situations. Effective ministry flourishes when the person ministering the word knows the depth of content and the needs of the people. So there's real people that Paul has in mind. The second thing to notice is look at how many times the word greet is used. It's so in verse three, greet Prisca and Aquila. It's um, in verse five, greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphanes. Greet the, who's the first convert in Christ. Greet Mary. You see, over and over, 17 times this word greet is used. Sometimes it's in the context of a longer statement about the person. Sometimes it's just in the context of a list of names. When you see that word, you can't think of it as just tell so-and-so I said hi. That's not what Paul is doing. These greetings that he's sending are a byproduct of the love that he had for the people in Rome. What did Jesus tell his disciples in John 13 about love? He said this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when Paul says greet them, it's an affectionate greeting because these individuals and the short affirmations that he gives to them are a byproduct of his love that he feels for them. In other words, he greets them because he loves them. beautiful thing about the Gospel and what it does is that it, it brings people together and it causes you to love people and to express that love in the beautiful work that God has done in them. Look at some of the qualifiers of what he loves about these people. Phoebe, he calls her our sister and a servant of the church in verse one. In verse two, Prisca and Aquila, Or rather, verse 3, Prisca and Aquila are called my fellow workers in Christ. In verse 7, Andronicus and Junia are called my kinsmen. They are well known to the apostles. Look at verse 8: Impliatus is my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9: Urbanus, our fellow worker. Verse 9: Stachis, my beloved. Verse 10, Apollos he's approved in Christ. Verse 11, he talks about those who are part of the family of Narcissus, those who in the Lord belong to that family. In verse 12, Persis, he calls him beloved. And in verse 13, he calls Rufus, chosen in the Lord. So what is Paul doing? He's more than just acknowledging these people. What he's doing is illustrating the way that the gospel creates a love that the people in the body of Christ have for one another. In other words, a relationship with Christ changes the relationships that you have with one another. This is what the gospel does. And by the gospel, I mean this, that the Bible tells us that we're sinners and that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save ourselves, that we need someone else, Christ, who could cover our sin and take our penalty and pay for our sins. And when that personal relationship becomes yours, it not only changes what you think about God and what you think about yourself, but here's the beautiful thing, it changes what you think about others, and it changes the way that you relate to others. Because suddenly now the whole world isn't about you anymore. If the whole world is about you, that was what created the problem. And when that worldview changes, it changes the way in which we relate and the way in which we interact with one another. For some of you, this Sunday is a place of refuge after spending time with family who simply don't get that reality. In fact, this weekend may have been, for some of you, just another reminder that there are certain members of your family that you are headed in absolutely different directions. And you may have come this morning just weary and a bit sad What happens is that the Gospel shapes your values, your views, what you live for is suddenly now increasingly Gospel-centered. And then what makes the church a beautiful thing is that it is this gathering of people who come from all walks of life, but we love the same Lord, we share the same values, we have the same vision, and the church was designed, and historically she has been a place of refuge where the gospel could be celebrated in the context of loving relationships. And I want to suggest to you that over the next 10 to 15 years, the concept of a church becoming a refuge for people is going to become increasingly important. As people come, and say, I am weary and I need some brothers and sisters in Christ. So when you read the New Testament, there are many one another commands. How are we supposed to relate to one another? Here's here's a few. We're supposed to love one another from John 15. We're supposed to be devoted to one another and honor one another in Romans 12. We're to live in harmony with one another in Romans 12, 16. We're to accept one another, Romans 15. We're to serve one another. We're to carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6.2. We're to forgive one another, Ephesians 4:32. We're to encourage one another. Hebrews 10 25. We're to pray for each other in John James 5-16. We're to bear with one another colossians 3 13 and there's many 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 more one another commands in the new testament and what is so amazing about that list is how different that list is from how human beings normally interact ray ortland gives us another list that is often more typical of how we interact with one another here's another one another list Sanctify one another. Humble one another. Scrutinize one another. Pressure one another. Embarrass one another. Corner one another. Interrupt one another. Defeat one another. Sacrifice one another. Shame one another. Judge one another. Run one another's lives. Confess one another's sins. Intensify one another's sufferings. Point out one another's failings. That's the world in which we live, and the image that Paul paints in Romans 16 and throughout the entire New Testament is this beautiful, relationally connected group of people who love the same Lord, and in the context of that love of grace, find out how to love one another in the context of relationships. Let me show you this in another passage. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. The beauty of the gospel is that it changes how you relate to other people. It changes your relationships. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1, he specifically identifies how the gospel changes how we relate to particular people. He says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Notice This is how you're supposed to treat an older man in the church when you're a fellow follower of Jesus, or treat younger men like brothers, meaning if if you're a younger man and you're in the same church and you love Jesus, suddenly now you become a brother. Older women are to be treated like mothers. And then I love this one, younger women are to be treated like sisters in all purity. Notice there that the fundamental relationships among believers have changed. You're not just an old man, you're now to me a father. You're not just another guy, you're a brother. You're not just an older woman, you're like my mother. And you're not just a woman or a young woman, you're like my sister. And the fact is that those relationships are then fundamentally changed. The gospel changes how we relate to one another, and that is very clear throughout the New Testament, and it's also very clear in Romans 16. Back to Romans 16, 26 names. The other thing I want want you to notice here before we dig into some specifics is that Paul refers to the people who are on this list as fellow laborers, workers, servants, and even fellow prisoners. And there is a sense that they are all part of the same mission. They're all a part of the advance of the gospel, and it's something that they are all doing together. And what you need to know and understand is that throughout church history, the gospel has most often been advanced through teams of people who were in relationship with one another. It is very rare that you find a solo operator who has great influence in church history. A friend of mine who is a student of revival movements puts it this way. I love this. He says this, history is transformed among friends. (laughs) History is transformed among friends. Just, Just think of the arc of church history. You have Peter, James, and John with Jesus. You have Paul who has Barnabas, Silas, and John Mark. In the English Reformation, you have John Knox, who was a dear friend of John Calvin. In the First Great Awakening, the seeds of that began in Oxford with something that was called the Holy Club, where John and Charles Wesley met George Whitfield. In the Second Great Awakening, it had its roots in something that was called the Five Wild Men of the Cumberland, men who gathered together to pray and seek the face of God. You have major literature that's affected the landscape of Christianity, like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, and yet those two beautiful pieces of literature were written in community as C.S. Lewis and Tolkien gathered together to improve one another's writings. The point is this, that God usually works through the relationships of his people as they come together with a common purpose. The gospel is usually spread with friends so can I just ask you some questions in light of the importance of these relationships is this how you think about church is this how you think about ministry do you see the value of the relationships that are around you do you see that there's something really important and valuable I would even argue critical about the value of people knowing you and the value of you knowing other people, or are you just a solo operator? There's some of you here this morning, we're gonna watch this or listen to this, some of you in Fishers, you are incredibly lonely, and part of the reason you're lonely is you're trying to walk through life all by yourself. Some people come to church and they try and keep their distance from others, they they make as few connections as possible, And I think Romans 16 illustrates a better path, a path where together there's these relationships, and these relationships become the fertile ground for the demonstration of the spread of the gospel. Here's my question. If you didn't show up at College Park Church for six weeks, would anybody know? Now, our elders are working hard to be sure that we know, and there's a part of that that's on us. But let me be blunt. If you're here and then you're not here for six weeks and no one knows part of that's on us and part of that's on you. Because relationship is part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And when Paul writes Romans 16, he's recounting the relationships that he has with these people. There's something important about these relationships. I think far more important than maybe what we even realize. Now secondly, there's also something about the variety of relationships here that's stunning. Let's dig a little deeper and see what we can find. A few observations. The first is this. This list includes people from all walks of life. The list includes names of people who have different Racial and ethnic backgrounds. You have people who are Jewish, people who are Roman, people who are Greeks. Verse 3, it includes a married couple. We'll talk more about them in a moment. Prisca and Aquila, or sometimes she's known as Priscilla and Aquila. We have people who we assume are single because there's no spouse that is mentioned in verse 8. We have men that are mentioned. We have women that are mentioned. We have wealthy people like Phoebe in verse 1, and we have slaves like in verse 10, There are house churches that are addressed in verse 15, and there are individuals. So part of the beauty of what's happening here and what should characterize every church is that there's something beautifully diverse about the body of Christ because something greater than ethnicity, something greater than socioeconomic status, something greater than your own personal history has come into the field of view, namely a relationship with Jesus. And when that happens, The church is not only beautiful, it is a force to reckon with in the community. As people look at this church and say, how in the world does that hold together? In the midst of all types of of racial tension in our community, in the midst of all kinds of violence in the midst of our community, the church is supposed to be a safe place, a beachhead, if you will, of how people who are incredibly different get along. Paul said this in the book of Galatians You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, meaning people who are part of the church come from all walks of life. So if you're hanging out here and you see somebody who comes from a different walk of life than you, You need to go and talk to them and say, hey brother, sister, I don't know you, what's your story? And find out the way in which God led them to this church. The second observation is this list has many women and prominent women listed. Verse one is the most obvious, Phoebe, verses one and two, she is a wealthy woman who Paul gave the letter to take to the church at Rome, or the church is at Rome, and he delivered it, she delivered it on his behalf, and she's identified as a servant, which likely means she's a deaconess at the church at Corinth. Prisca and Aquila, we'll talk more about them in a moment. She is normally listed first, often called Priscilla, likely due to her elevated socioeconomic status, as well, as other women who are listed here in Romans 16, and four of them are followed with the word worker or laborer, which Paul often used to describe, uses to describe some kind of missionary activity or ministry work. The point is this, that when Paul writes to the churches at Rome, he has some very prominent and important women in mind who are very active in the work of the ministry. So although Paul in other passages identifies that the role of elder and a pastor should be reserved exclusively for men, there is clearly an affirmation of the importance of these women in the work of ministry for other non-pastoral roles. So let me go on record, women, you are incredibly important to the labor and the work of ministry, so much so that women were very prominently listed in Romans 16. Some men got a clap to that here, so, right? (laughs) Third, it's fascinating that Paul uses different words to describe his connections and his partnership with people on the list. He, he calls people sister, servant, fellow workers, fellow prisoners. He calls them the church, which is the first time this word church is used in the book of Romans. First convert, kinsman, beloved, approved, workers, those who belong, chosen, a mother to me, and he calls them saints. The variety here is Stunning. And that is that as Paul got connected to people, the more he got connected to them, the more enriched his life became as he saw the beauty of what was taking place in their lives. Let's look at some specific examples. We don't have time to look at them all, and frankly, we don't know all of what these names mean or what the story is. Look at verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus. Look at this, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia? I bet that guy was special. First convert to Christ, Paul remembers his name. Verses 10 and 11, we have two names that are used. Aristobulus and Narcissus. Aristobulus may have been the grandson of Herod the Great, and Narcissus may have served Emperor Claudius. These were likely prominent households, and Paul is addressing those who were a part of these famous households, likely slaves and servants. Verse 13, He's another one. Greet Rufus. By the way, I, I can't, I've been in ministry 25 years, I can't think of a child that's ever been named Rufus. It's a biblical name. Rufus, you know who he may be? He may be one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene from Mark chapter 15. Remember Simon? Simon who carried the cross of Christ. And as well, Paul tells us that Rufus' mother was especially significant to him. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, we have two workers named Adronicus and Junia. They were believers who had come to faith before Paul He says they were in Christ before me, and he also says that they were well-known to the apostles because of their joint missionary efforts. They were, as well, fellow prisoners with Paul. There are at least five house churches that are mentioned in this list. So the book of Romans was written to a series of house churches, but there are two believers in particular that we need to look at. Verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila. This is Priscilla and Aquila. Who are they? They became very important people to the Apostle Paul. Go to Acts chapter 18. Let's look at a few texts. Priscilla and Aquila are the kind of people in Paul's life that, frankly, I would like you to be. They were dear friends. They they met Paul during his second missionary journey. Look at verse 1 of Acts 18. And after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So they lived in Rome, and they got expelled. And he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, meaning he and Aquila were tent makers, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So here's how they meet, and they become dear friends, and Romans sixteen four tells us that Prisca and Aquila risked their necks, to whom he says, not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Look at verse 18 of Acts 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So he heads to Syria, takes Priscilla and Aquila with him, and then look ahead to chapter 18 and verse 26. We find this Jew named Apollos, who is a very eloquent man in the scriptures. And verse 26 tells us that Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then 1 Corinthians 16:19 tells us that they moved back to Ephesus, where a church met in their home. And at some point they moved back to Rome. Where according to Romans 16.5, they then also had a church in their home in the city of Rome. And then when Paul writes in Second Timothy, Priscilla and Aquila have moved back to Ephesus. So these people move around. But the amazing thing is, wherever they go, they're incredibly useful, they open up their homes, you find a house church in almost every home that's mentioned of them in the Bible, and these people just keep moving around from point to point to point to point, and they are useful in every situation in which God drops them in. In every place that they went, God used them for ministry purpose. That does not happen by accident. Aquila and Priscilla were special people to the Apostle Paul, people that you could drop just about anywhere, and suddenly they're going to find a way to get involved and be a part of the work of ministry. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of you? Just drop him in that small group and great things are going to happen. Drop him in that ABF class and amazing things are going to take place. God's placed you in your neighborhood and suddenly you have an influence that just happens. It happened in this city, it happened in the last city. Oh, for more people like Priscilla and Aquila, The beautiful thing about them is that they were a joy to the Apostle Paul's life. Sometimes I lovingly refer to people as a seven iron. (laughs) The reason I love a seven iron when I'm golfing is because you can use it just about anywhere. I mean, if you're a bad driver like I am, you just use a seven iron and you can play a par five and get to the green in three hits if you hit a seven iron pretty well. What I love about a 7-iron, you would be under a tree, you can use it to get it out. You can can putt with a 7-iron if you wanted. A 7-iron is useful no matter where you go. A driver, a putter, it only has has limited usage. And there are some times that I refer to people in this church, seriously, I've said this with our staff, yeah, they're like a 7-iron because you can use them no matter where you are under a tree, in a counseling situation, in in a discipleship role, put them wherever they are and great things are going to happen. They're like a 7-iron. They are incredibly useful. And I want to encourage you to think biblically to be like a and aquila from a golf standpoint to be like a 7 iron be the kind of person no matter where you are somehow some way God uses you the importance of relationships the variety here's the application what does it mean to leverage relationships Having spent time in Romans 16 this week and looking at the critical importance of relationships, let me invite you to ask a couple questions of your own soul by virtue of this text. Here's the first one. Do you fundamentally see the value of relationships? One of the very significant things that emerges from this text is to realize how important these relationships were to the life of the church at Rome and to realize that relationships are supremely important to the church, to gospel ministry, and even our spiritual growth. In fact, they are more important than we often realize. Sometimes we think of relationships as the things that would be nice to have, but are not entirely necessary. But I will tell you that this text, along with many one another commands, shows us that ministry is not just what we do or what we know, but whom we do it with. So spiritual growth is not just about what you know about God. It's not just about your spiritual maturity. It's about whose life you are impacting and how it is that you are helping others to grow. So therefore, the goal is not just to come to church, to grow personally, and to serve effectively. The goal is to come. The goal is to come and connect. The goal is to come and grow and share and serve and then do it together. One of the reasons we started Fisher's was to make this conversation a part of the normal conversation for our church. That as new opportunities emerged, as new service opportunities came online, as new relationships were formed, that suddenly relationships would become a new reality for us in the body of Christ. So as you serve, either Fishers, or you serve here, I want to remind you, your goal is not just to serve. Your goal is to serve together and to serve with other people. Your goal is just to come on a Sunday, but to figure out how do I connect with other people? So that's why over the last number of months we've been talking about connecting. Because our elders and pastors believe that Spiritually oriented relationships are a central part of what it means for us to be the body of Christ and a central context for spiritual growth. So spiritual growth and effective ministry takes place in relationships. And my question is this, do you see that as important? Here's the second thing. What value do you add to the relationships around you? when I'm reading this list in Romans 16 and I'm hearing things like greet so-and-so because he or she is this, it prompted me to think, what would people say about me? Greet Mark, greet Mark Vrogup, for he is, well, what, would, what would fill in the blank? What would, what would they fill in the blank for you? What would our elders fill in the blank for you? Greet so-and-so because he is this. What would someone affirm about your walk with Christ? And for that matter, is there anybody who could affirm that? Go to Hebrews 13. Let me show you a passage. Hebrews 13, 17 is a very important text. It also lets you in on a little secret. I've said this before. It's been a while. I'm going to repeat it. A little secret in regards to pastoral ministry. There's something that happens behind the scenes that I want you to know about. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's our responsibility. We're gonna have to give an account. And then it says this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So the idea is this, spiritual leaders have a responsibility to give an account, and you as a congregation have a responsibility to live in such a way that your life is a joy and not a groan. And the dirty little secret is this. As our pastors and elders have names that come up, an email that pops up, we pray over, and look over the church directory, you see a name, and instantaneously, there are two kinds of emotions. There's either joy, like, oh, God, bless them. And there's other people, you're like, Lord, help (laughs) them, help them. And the question is this, when your name comes up with your pastors and shepherds and elves, when it comes up with your small group leaders, when it comes up in your Sunday school class, is your name a joy, like, God, thank you for them, or is that, oh. (laughs) What value do you add to the relationships that are around you? What would people say? Greet so-and-so and and help him to be better. (laughs) Greet so-and-so and and encourage him to keep following hard after Christ. Then finally, there's the third question, and it's this. We're coming to an end of the year, and my question would be, what relationships might God want to use in your life? Who are the people that God has placed in your life right now? If you're married, if you have children, what are you going to do to maximize those relationships for spiritual influence? Next year, we'll be giving you some resources. We're going to be using a a fighter-verse memory system from Children Desiring God to help you memorize Scripture, either as a family or as individuals. And then there's a beautiful family devotional guide. We're going to give you... Everything you would need to lead your family spiritually well. The question is, who's God placed in your orbit? If you're not married, if you're single, who's God placed in your sphere of influence? Where has God placed you at work? Where has he placed you in your small group? Who are the people that are in your orbit? Maybe 2016 could be a year where you find new ways and pray about new ways to leverage relationships for spiritual growth if you're serving in a particular ministry area, maybe it's that you don't just serve with the idea I'm going to do this ministry, but instead I'm going to do this in the context of pouring my life into other people. Or maybe maybe the absence of relational connectedness is part of the problem this morning, and maybe next year needs to be the year where you say, you know, I got to find a way to disciple someone. I got to get involved in a small group. I got to i got to be involved in counseling and soul care, some way to pour into the lives of other people. The point is simply this. God has providentially placed you with people around you. Do not miss the opportunity to leverage those relationships for the sake of the gospel. In fact, I would argue those relationships are the context for the gospel. So Romans 16 is more than just a list of names. What's embedded in this text is the importance of relationships, and Paul then ends Romans 16 with two final words. First, all the churches of Christ greet you. He connects them to all the other churches of Christ, and then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, which means a personal, relational greeting. What Paul is doing here is he's giving us a vision of what the church should be, which is a place where we are connected to something bigger than ourselves. We're connected to the people around us, that the gospel is, in effect, lived out through loving, gospel-centered relationships. That's what Romans 16 illustrates, and that's the kind of church that we need to continue to be. The gospel in the context of of loving and caring for one another. Let's pray. Father, help us to be the kind of people who pour out our lives in ministry and service, but also who do it in the context of caring and loving one another. We pray that you'd give us the kind of heart and mindset that relates to knowing how to pour into one another, how to make the gospel platformed in the context of relationships. So would you help us to do that even now, that we might be a people who not only hear the word, but now even act on it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.